Hello, this is Tom Allen, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the October 17th issue of the New York Times here on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The first set of articles deals with an update of the war between Israel and Hamas. This title is called Israel-Hamas War, Biden Plans to Go to Israel as the U.S. Pushes Aid Deal for Gaza. And it reads, Pressure is mounting to provide relief supplies and safe zones for civilians in Gaza. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have fled their homes as Israeli airstrikes intensify. And it next shows a picture of a destruction of in, in the Israeli-Gaza area. And it reads, Israeli forces again bombarded Gaza with airstrikes on Tuesday, including in the southern cities of Gan Yunus and Rafah. Here's the latest on the war. President Biden was expected to visit Israel on Wednesday as pressure mounted to provide safety and aid to hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in Gaza who have fled their homes before a likely Israeli invasion. Officials have warned a humanitarian crisis there will worsen without immediate help. Days of efforts to get aid through Egypt's border with Gaza have failed to bear fruit. Early Tuesday morning, the United States again expressed hope that it was close to an aid agreement and to establishing, quote, safe zones, unquote, in southern Gaza, where the United Nations says that about 600,000 Palestinians have fled after Israel warned them to leave the north. Another update subtitle, Israeli airstrikes hit an area of southern Gaza where Palestinians have fled. And it immediately shows pictures of rescuers amid the damage and destruction. And it reads, rescuers pulling people from the rubble in Khan Ronus in southern Gaza on Tuesday following airstrikes. While Israel has called on residents of the Gaza Strip to evacuate to the southern part of the blockade enclave, its military continues to bombard targets there. Gazan authorities they say that has left no safe place for civilians to flee. The Israeli military on Tuesday released a statement saying that warplanes had struck, quote, dozens of terror targets, unquote, throughout Gaza, including Rafah, Rafah and Khan Yanis, two southern cities where Gazans have fled in anticipation as anticipation grows of an Israeli ground invasion. President Emmanuel Macron of France 
reiterated his support for Israelis, Israel's rights to defend itself, but said that it had to take humanitarian and international law into account in order to protect civilians in Gaza. Quote, for France, Israel's security, the fight against terrorist groups, but also the peace process and a political solution are an inseparable whole, unquote, Macron said on a visit to Albania. Another updated comment from a different reporter <clears throat> said that conditions in southern Gaza are deteriorating fast and some displaced people are considering going back to the north, which they have just fled, according to aid workers. Quote, the south is not safe, unquote, Shana Lau of the Norwegian Refugee Council said in a phone interview with Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, excuse me. Quote, many people are sleeping on the streets, unquote. Another quick update from a different reporter. The Israeli army said it killed four militants who were attempting to cross the border from Lebanon and plan an explosive device. An anti-tank missile was also fired at the northern Israeli town of Metula, and the army responded with tank fire, it said in a statement. <clears throat> Still another... <clears throat> Update from a different reporter a couple hours ago. UNRWA, the UN agency that helps Palestinians, said that fuel reserves at all hospitals across the Gaza Strip are expected to last only for another 24 hours. Gaza lost electricity last week after Israel blocked basic supplies from entering the Strip, forcing hospitals to switch to generators whose fuel supplies are running out. Another reporter writes, <clears throat> President Biden spoke to Iraq's Prime Minister, Mohammed Shia al-Sudani, late Monday, as the U.S. pushes to gather diplomatic support in the Middle East. The leaders discussed containing Israel's war against Hamas and getting aid to Gaza, among other topics. That's according to statements by both governments. Iraq, which has both U.S. troops and Iranian proxy forces on its territory, is under pressure from both the West and Iran in the Israeli conflict. Still another updated comment from a different reporter. <clears throat> the authorities in Gaza said that they have received reports of about 1,200 people who remain trapped under the rubble of destroyed homes and buildings, including 500 children. Quote, we hope that some of them are still alive, unquote. And that is from the Gaza Health Ministry. Next is a picture of a survivor with a mask looking for wounded or injured. And it says, 
Rather, it was taken by Yusuf Masood for the New York Times. Here's another updated quote from another reporter. Gaza's interior ministry said that Israel has continued to strike southern Gaza even after demanding that Palestinians relocate there for the north, from the north, quote, for their own safety, unquote. Several strikes hit residential buildings, killing at least 72 people and wounding dozens more. <clears throat> Another uh, reporter wrote, a day after Hamas posted a hostage video of her daughter, Maya, Karen Shem pleaded for her release. Quote, all I want from world leaders is to bring my baby home, unquote, Shem's mother said at a news conference in Tel Aviv, adding, quote, she looks very terrified, unquote. And in this video, as she's talking, she's holding a picture of her daughter, Maya, <clears throat> pleading for her safety and release. The next <clears throat> article regarding the war is titled, A Palestinian Man Who Was a Driver Near the Rave Is Thought to Be Held Hostage in Gaza. And in it, it begins with a photograph of many water bottles strewn around at a park. And it reads, the site of a musical festival in Israel that was overrun by Hamas militants this month. And the article continues, a young Palestinian man from East Jerusalem Sahib Muhammad Abu Amar is missing and believed to have been taken hostage by Hamas and ferried into Gaza, his family said. Mr. Abu Amar, 22, is thought to be the only Palestinian who is not a citizen of Israel to be reported missing from the attacks. Another article update. <clears throat> says Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, Israel's chief military spokesman, called the video of Mia Shem, an Israeli hostage in Gaza, quote, psychological terror by Hamas, unquote. He said he expected there to be more videos of hostages. This next article is titled 10 Stops in Five Days Plus an Air Raid Shelter for Blinken. And it begins, the Secretary of State's chaotic trip in the Middle East has underscored the scale and complexity of the diplomatic crisis that he faces. And it begins actually with a photograph of Mr. Blinken walking with several of his aides nearby and it says, Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken in Tel Aviv on Monday. His trip was originally scheduled for two days. <clears throat> and this article is updated today, October 17th. It begins, 
Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken hurried into a bunker as air raid sirens wailed in Tel Aviv on Monday. In the most dramatic moment of a whirlwind and unusually chaotic Middle East tour for America's top diplomat. After his second visit to Israel in five days, Mr. Blinken was scheduled to land in Oman, Jordan, on Monday night. But he ended up stuck in a marathon overnight negotiation session in Tel Aviv. And his next destination was uncertain. A trip originally scheduled for two days has now extended into its six with 10 stops and counting. For an official whose travel schedule is meticulously planned and rarely revised, Mr. Blinken's frenetic journey has underscored the scale and complexity of the diplomatic crisis that he faces. Mr. Blinken is at once trying to show U.S. support for Israel after it was attacked by Hamas on October 7th. It's also the trip is to show limited Arab criticism of Israel's military response. Also, Mr. Blinken is trying to show a win for the freedom of hostages held by Hamas in Gaza, as well as prevent an escalation of the conflict, perhaps to include Hezbollah and Iran that might draw in the United States. It's been a grim voyage for Mr. Blinken, who at times appeared haunted as he described the slaughter of Israeli citizens and a growing humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Speaking to reporters in Cairo, Cairo on Sunday, two days after his first stop at Israel, Mr. Blinken conceded that things had become a blur, even for him. Quote, I think I've lost track, unquote, of how many countries he had visited, Mr. Blinken said, before correctly putting the count at seven since his departure from Washington on Wednesday afternoon. And those countries are Egypt, Bahrain, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates plus two stops each in Israel, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. For State Department veterans, Mr. Blinken's travel was reminiscent of a recent predecessor, John Kerry, who was Secretary of State during the Obama administration, who frequently had extended and improvised trips. The ad hoc nature of the trip for Mr. Blinken began just days after the massacres by the Hamas. Mr. Blinken immediately moved up a visit to the region that he had planned for the following week. The State Department announced that he would depart on October 11th for Israel and Jordan and return on October 13th. That plan was soon torn up as State Department officials in consultation with the White House, expanded Mr. Blinken's itinerary to include several other major capitals. And you are listening to a reading of articles and features 
from the October 17th issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. This next article deals with the country of China. And the title of this article reads, China invested $1 trillion to gain global influence. Can that go on? Xi Jinping, the enhanced China's uh, leader, is trying to influence the world by lending money for infrastructure. Now, he's collecting debts, and he's rethinking his signature and initiative. The article be- begins with a very impressive photograph of a, of a manufacturing building site of fast train, fast speed trains, and it reads, high speed trains at a main construction site in Indonesia. And the article begins, China's top leader, Xi Jinping, founded the the Belt and Road Initiative. He founded a decade ago to use a country's economic might to enlarge its geopolitical heft and counter the influence of the United States and other industrialized democracies. China has since dispersed close to $1 trillion to mostly developing countries, largely in loans, to build power plants, roads, airports, telecommunication networks, and other infrastructure. Mr. Xi has used China's cash and infrastructure expertise to tie together countries across Asia, Africa, Latin America, and parts of Eastern and Southern Europe. Belt and Road has established for China a role in global development, rivaling that of the United States and the World Bank. But for all the influences brought Beijing, the initiative has contributed to unaffordable levels of debt for dozens of poor countries. China had also directed contracts to its own companies and in some cases built expensive subpar projects that have not spurred economic growth. Now, as representatives from many of the nearly 150 Belt and Road countries assemble in Beijing this week for a summit, the initiative is changing shape. China's role has shifted from being the world's largest bilateral lender to also its largest debt collector. And it next shows a photograph of soldiers in uniform standing in front of a very large building with many Chinese flags flying. And it reads, the Chinese honor guards at the airport in Beijing marching before the arrival of Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, for the Belt and Road Summit. The article continues. The government is now emphasizing smaller grants for projects that are more environmentally sustainable. China, in 2021, 
announced a new financial framework, the Global Development Initiative, to supplement the Belt and Road. These changes underline how China's mounting debt and economic troubles are limiting its ability to project financial power abroad. Boston University's Global Development Policy Center calculates that China's issuance of overseas loans and other development finance peaked in 2016 at nearly $90 billion. Then it wilted to less than $5 billion in 2021, the most recent data available. China's taken a hard line in negotiations over debt relief to countries like Sri Lanka, Suriname, and Zambia, Zambia rather. Next is a summary of photographs of apparently important leaders getting off airplanes and greeted, greeted by Chinese officials. And it reads, the caption reads, Foreign leaders gathering in Beijing on Sunday ahead of the Belt and Road Summit including, include Vice President Kashim Shatima of Nigeria, President Gabriel Boric of Chile, Prime Minister Viktor Orban of Hungary, and Prime Minister Abiy Ahmad of Ethiopia. And to all my listeners, I apologize for my pronunciation of these leaders and other individuals in my articles. I just, I've got to apologize for that. I'm doing my best. The next subtitle of this article deals, is called The Rise of Belt and Road. <clears throat> and it begins, Wang Jisi, the founding president of the Institute of International and Strategic Studies at Peking University, published a paper in 2012 that would reshape China's foreign policy doctrine. It was titled, quote, Marching West, unquote, and it contended that China should pay less attention to confronting powerful allies of the United States to the East, like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan and the Philippines, and focusing more on Central Asia and the Middle East. Mr. Xi embraced that approach after he took power later that year. China had st just started to send goods to European markets on trains that followed 2,000-year-old Silk Road routes across the steppes of Central Asia. Mr. Xi traveled to Kazakhstan, Chinese China's western neighbor and announced a quote Silk Road Economic Belt unquote in September of 2013. Four weeks later, after Southeast Asian nations asked to be included, Mr. Xi announced a quote Maritime Silk Road unquote to link countries across Southeast Asia and South Asia to East Africa. Next is a picture of a worker at a, an office building, a very modern office building, and the caption reads, a picture of Joko Widodo, Indonesia's president, and Xi Jinping, 
at the construction site of a high-speed train station in Bandun, Indonesia. And the article continues very briefly. The initiative that went global, encompassing more affluent countries that seemed to China to have unsteady ties with the United States. By 2019, Hungary, Portugal, and even Italy, a member of the Group 7 of leading industrial democracies, had signed agreements to cooperate with what by then it has been renamed the Belt and Road Initiative. So did Iran, Saudi Arabia, and countries across Latin America and Africa. For China, broader economic influence has sometimes brought political complications. That was seen in China's cautious initial statements after the Hamas attack, attacks in Israel. State television and the rest of China's global propaganda apparatus have emphasized Israel's bombings of Gaza over the preceding Hamas attack, presenting China as a true friend of the world's poor. This next article deals with local politics in our country. And the title of this article and an update of this article appears next. And the title of the article is called Jordan Inches Closer to Speakership, But Republican Holdouts Remain. And it begins, the Ohio Republican won over several mainstream members of his party who had initially withheld their support, but was still short of the votes needed to win the gavel. And the article really begins with a photograph of Mr. Jordan walking through a lobby with many of his uh, aides around him. And it just simply reads, <clears throat> the caption reads, Representative Jim Jordan won his party's nomination for the speaker post on Friday. And here's an update. <clears throat> Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio picked up steam on Monday in his bid to become speaker, winning over several of his biggest opponents in the fractured GOP ranks, even as deep reservations remained about elevating him to the top post in the House. Several mainstream Republicans who had said they could not countenance a vote for Mr. Jordan, the hardline co-founder of the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus, fell into line after a pressure campaign by his right-wing allies and a series of one-on-one -on -one calls with him. Their reversals suggested that Mr. Jordan was within striking distance of the 217 votes he would need to be elected in a planned vote around noon today but the outcome remained far from certain. Quote, the role of the speaker is to bring all Republicans together. That's what I intend to do, unquote, Mr. Jordan said in a letter sent to his Republican colleagues yesterday. In it, Mr. Jordan acknowledged that deep, the deep divisions in the GOP, and he said he would give more lawmakers input 
into the party's agenda. Quote, we will make sure there are more Republican voices involved in our major decisions beyond the five families, unquote, he wrote, using House GOP lawmakers shorthand for the various factions in their ranks. It is also a reference to the warring mafia families. People close to Mr. Jordan, who is currently the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, said the number of Republican holdouts has shrunk from around 50 to around 10. That's still enough to block his election. But he planned to press ahead anyway, counting on his remaining opposition to cave under pressure on the House floor. Leaving a two-hour meeting of House Republicans on Monday night at the Capitol, Mr. Jordan indicated he would force a series of floor votes on Tuesday until Republicans had chosen a speaker. Quote, We need to get a speaker tomorrow, meaning today, he said, unquote. The, quote, The American people deserve to have their Congress, their House of Representatives working, and you can't have that happening without a speaker. So we need to do that. Plus, we need to be helping our best friend and closest ally, Israel, unquote. And that's according to a letter Mr. Jordan sent to his GOP colleagues. Should Mr. Jordan, 59, become speaker, it would cap an extraordinary rise in Congress that propelled him from a right-wing rebel on the fringes of his party to the post that is second in line to the presidency. His ascent would be the clearest indicator yet of how far House Republicans have moved to the right during Mr. Jordan's 16 years in the chamber. It would also show how strong a grip former President Donald J. Trump, who counts Mr. Jordan among his closest allies, has on the party. A small band of hard-right Republicans, most of whom are supporters of Mr. Jordan, forced Kevin McCarthy out as Speaker two weeks ago. Then a broader group of Mr. Jordan's supporters refused to back the party's initial chosen successor for the post, Representative Steve Scalise of Louisiana, who abruptly withdrew last week. <clears throat> The downfalls of Mr. McCarthy and Mr. Scalise left many mainstream Republicans bitter that the will of the majority in their ranks had not been honored. Several argued that elevating Mr. Jordan would reward, quote, bad behavior, unquote. In his conversations with holdouts, Mr. Jordan said he listened to, quote, frustrations about the treatment of Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise and the events of the past month, unquote. Several members spoke against Mr. Jordan's candidacy during the closed-door meeting on Monday night in the basement of the Capitol. One representative, Mike Kelly of Pennsylvania, proposed giving Representative Patrick T. McHenry of North Carolina, 
the temporary speaker, whose role is primarily to hold an election for a speaker to give him more power to carry out the chamber's work for the next month until the conflict could be resolved. Mr. Kelly said, using a profanity to describe the tactics Mr. Jordan's supporters used to underline Mr. Scully's victory, said, quote, when you go outside the rules of your own conference because you didn't get your way, I think that is truly sad. That is a real indictment of who you are, unquote. Mr. Jordan won the party's nomination after Mr. Scalise's withdrawal, but scores of Republicans signaled that they would not support him on the House floor. That was before Mr. Jordan and his allies went to work with a public pressure campaign against lawmakers who were, who were resisting his election. And you are listening to a reading of articles and features from the October 17th New York Times issue on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Continuing with the article on Mr. Jordan, it goes on, Amy Creamer, a political activist who also leads Women for America First, which organized a Stop the Steal rally on January 6, 2021, posted a hit list of 12 members of the Congress of the GOP on Friday. She listed their office phone numbers, and urged her followers to call them and tell them to support Mr. Jordan. The list included Representatives Ann Wagner of Missouri, Mike Rogers of Alabama, and Carlos Jimenez of Florida, all of whom had publicly stated their opposition to Mr. Jordan. By Monday morning, yesterday, two of the three had declared their support for Mr. Jordan. Ms. Wagner, a supporter of Mr. Scalise, had called Mr. Jordan's candidacy a, quote, non-starter, unquote, and accused him of being behaving carelessly after his loss, excuse me, after behaving classlessly after his loss to Mr. Scalise. But on Monday, she said Mr. Jordan had won her over. Quote, Throughout my time in Congress, I have always been a team player and supported our Republican nominees out of conference, unquote, Ms. Wagner said in a statement. Quote, Jim Jordan and I spoke at length again this morning, and he has allayed my concerns about keeping the government open with conservative funding, the need for strong border security, our need for consistent international support in times of war and unrest, as well as the need for stronger protections against the scourge of human trafficking and child exploitation, unquote. Mr. Rogers, the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, said he had, quote, two cordial, thoughtful, and productive conversations, unquote, with Mr. Jordan and he received assurances about carrying out the functioning of government and funding the military. 
Mr. Jordan also picked up support from Representative Ken Calvert of California, the chairman of the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee, who said he had spoken with Mr. Jordan, quote, about how we must get the House back on the path to achieve our national security and appropriation goals, unquote. Another initial holdout, Representative Vern Buchanan of Florida, said he remained, quote, deeply frustrated, unquote. But he would vote for Mr. Jordan based on the need to have a functioning House. Quote, I believe the future and immediate well-being and security for our country is too important and the need for Republicans to move forward, united, which is greater than ever before. Quote, unquote, rather, Mr. Buchanan said. Still, there are some members of Congress who are unmoved. Mr. Jimenez said he would continue to support Mr. McCarthy and refused to give in to the hard-right rebels who had ousted him. Quote, Last week, eight colleagues joined all the Socialist Democrats to carry out a coup against our duly elected Republican Speaker McCarthy. Unquote. Mr. Jimenez wrote on a social media site, X. Quote, These eight lit the fuse, and every Democrat in Congress provided the gunpowder to overthrow the will of 96% of Republicans in Congress, who all voted to retain Speaker McCarthy. I will not partake in this despicable coup. Speaker McCarthy should have never been removed to begin with." Unquote. In a related, updated article, let me continue with this comments about the uh, openness of the House Speaker. And the title, updated title here is, Here's What Can't Get Done While Republicans Fight Over a Speaker. And it begins, A disarray among House Republicans has left the Chamber of Commerce of Congress hobbled at a time of international and domestic crises. And it continues, the article continues, Republican disunity over who will be the next speaker has brought the House to, to a standstill. Legislative business has been halted for more than a week, leaving one chamber of commerce hobbled in the face of crises at home and abroad. The House is now under the control of Representative Patrick McHenry of uh, Patrick T. McHenry of North Carolina, who was named as a temporary speaker. <clears throat> but Mr. McHenry is unelected and primarily in place to oversee the election of a new speaker, and his legislative powers are untested. The position second in line to the presidency remains unfilled. The infighting has consequences far beyond Capitol Hill. Here's a look at the big tasks that Congress faces as Republicans remain deadlocked. First, an aid package for Israel for its war against Hamas. 
There is broad bipartisan consensus on the need to rush additional military support to Israel for its war against Hamas. But the leadership vacuum means there is no certainty about how soon any aid could be approved and delivered. President Biden said in a speech on Tuesday that he would seek approval from Congress for additional funding for Israel. And officials in the administration have suggested a specific request that could come within weeks. Should the speaker fight where on, it's not clear whether the House could act on such a request. Another issue facing Congress, more assistance for Ukraine in its war against Russia. A White House request for $24 billion in additional funding for Ukraine is on hold during the leadership fight. Another issue is avoiding a government shutdown. Congress is operating under a temporary extension of last year's spending bills and has, until a self-imposed November 17th deadline, to pass 12 new year-long bills to fund government throughout the rest of the year and into 2024. In the nearly two weeks since Congress cleared the extension, the battle over the leadership, the speakership, has consumed many legislative days that otherwise could have been spent working through these spending measures. Mr. McCarthy was unable to persuade Republicans to support a stopgap bill to avert a shutdown and his decision to rely on on Democratic votes to pass one cost him his job. It was not clear how his successor might avoid one. The next article is an updated article from yesterday titled, Please, New Yorkers Beg, Make the weekend rain stop. And it has an introductory paragraph that says, New Yorkers have faced rainfall for six weekends, making for soggy pumpkin picking, muddy Central Park visits, and damp dinner outings. And this updated article begins with a picture of people waiting inside a little uh, cover or maybe a bus to come by <clears throat> as it's raining. And the caption reads, Commuters in the Bronx standing on a bench to avoid a flooded sidewalk during a rainy day last month. And once again, this is an updated article. The group chat has been filled with balloon and champagne emojis for days. At last, Candace Nielsa and five friends who live across New York City had managed to pick a date to have a, quote, girls' night out, unquote. But when that date, September 29th, came, the rain, too, followed, just as it seemingly has ever, every recent weekend in New York City area, turning what many hoped would have been a blissful free days of sunshine into gray afternoons <clears throat> and evenings with overcast skies, casting a damp, moody pall over the city. The clouds have essentially ruined many New Yorkers' plans. 
Perhaps Miss Nielsa's A Model in Bushwhack captured the vibe perfectly. Quote, I'm not going to lie, this sucks, unquote, she said. Pretty blunt to be asking, in my opinion. At first, the weather seemed just a string of bad luck. A weekend in August lost to an annoying drizzle, but no problem. Then another weekend lost in September. Then again, and again, and again. Until finally, <laughs> it was hard to be outside and soak this last Saturday and not think of that some, that some mysterious force was bent on drenching the city as soon as each work week ended. In fact, for six weekends, New Yorkers have been drenched by a steady stream from above, making for soggy pumpkin picking, a muddy Central Park concerts, and damp dinner outings. And there appears to be no relief coming. It'll likely rain again this Saturday, even if that'll not be the case during the weekdays. Even John Murray, a meteorologist with the New York City Weather Office, has been surprised by the onslaught of weekend precipitation, despite below-average rainfall for the month. Quote, What a coincidence, right? Unquote. There have only been 12 weekends without rain this year in Central Park, with the other 30 falling anywhere from drizzly to washouts. You'd have to return to the Labor Day weekend to find the last consecutive Saturday and Sunday at the park. And you are listening to a reading of articles and features from the October 17th issue of the New York Times here on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. This next article comes from the field of science. And the title of this article reads, Scientists Offer a New Explanation for Long COVID. A team of scientists is proposing a new explanation for some cases of long COVID based on their findings that serotonin levels, serotonin levels were lower in people with a complex condition. In their study published on Monday in the journal titled Cell, researchers at the University of Pennsylvania suggest that serotonin, serotonin, excuse me, Serotonin reduction is triggered by remnants of the virus lingering in the gut. Depleted serotonin could especially explain memory problems and some neurological and cognitive systems of long COVID, they say. Why it matters. This is a subtitle here. Why it matters. New ways to diagnose and treat long COVID. The article continues. This is one of several new studies documenting distinct biological changes in the bodies of people with long COVID, offering important discoveries for a condition that takes many forms and often does not register on, on standard diagnostic tools like x-rays. The research could point the way toward possible treatments, including medications that boost serotonin, 
and the authors said that the biological pathway that their research outlines could unite many of the major theories of what causes long COVID, that lingering remnants of the virus, inflammation, increased blood clotting, and dysfunction of the autom autotomic, excuse me, autonomic nervous system. Quote, all these different hypotheses might be connected through the serotonin pathway, unquote, said Christopher Thais, a lead author of the study and an assistant professor of microbiology at the Perlham, Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Quote, second of all, even if not everybody experiences difficulties in the serotonin pathway, at least a subset might respond to therapies that activate this pathway, unquote, he said. Quote, this is an excellent study that identifies lower levels of circulating serotonin as a mechanism for long COVID, unquote, said Aiko Aikiko Awasaki, an immunologist at Yale University. Her team and colleagues at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai recently published a study that identified other biological changes linked to some cases of long COVID, including levels of the hormone cortisol. These studies could point to specific subtypes of long COVID or different biological indicators at different points in the condition. Here's a backstory, a series of disruptions set off by bits of virus in the gut. The, this particular segment of this article reads, researchers analyzed the blood of 58 patients who had been experiencing long COVID for between three months and 22 months since their infection. Those results were compared to blood analysis of 30 people with no post-COVID symptoms and 60 people, 60 patients who were in the earlier acute stage of the coronavirus infection. Mayan Levy, a lead author and assistant professor of microbiology at the Perlman School of Medicine, said that levels of serotonin and other metabolites, metabolite, metabolites, excuse me, folks, sometimes these uh, words are ones I've not ever mentioned before. See, but I'm going to begin that sentence again. Mayan Levy, a lead author and assistant professor of microbiology at the Perlman School of Medicine, said levels of serotonin and other metabolites were altered right after a coronavirus infection, something that also happens immediately after other viral infections. But in people with long COVID, serotonin was the only significant molecule that did not recover to pre-infection levels, she said. The team analyzed stool samples from some of the long COVID patients and found that they contained remaining viral particles. Putting the findings in patients together with research on mice and miniature models of the human gut where most, where most serotonin is produced, the team identified a pathway that could 
underlying some cases of long COVID. And here's the idea. Viral remnants prompt the immune system to produce infection-fighting proteins called interferons and tefferons. Interferons cause inflammation that reduces the body's ability to absorb tritophan, an amino acid that helps produce serotonin in the gut. Blood clots that can form after a coronavirus infection may impair the body's ability to circulate serotonin. Depleted serotonin disrupts the vague, vagus nerve system, which transmits signals between the body and the brain, the researchers said. Serotonin plays a role in short-term memory, and the researchers propose that depleted serotonin could lead to memory problems and other cognitive issues that many people with long COVID experience. My last article <clears throat> celebrates the life of Margot Polivy, a champion of women in college sports who passed away recently. This article is called Margot Polivy, champion of women in college sports who died at the age of 85. She was a physical education teacher turned lawyer. She helped advocate for and shape regulations that provided more opportunities and resources for student-athletes. And it begins with a very nice picture of her. And it caption reads, Margot Polivy, Polivy worked on behalf of women's rights groups to ensure that the federal government offered equal opportunities in college athletics. And the article begins, <clears throat> Margot Polivy, a high school physical education teacher turned lawyer, who tirelessly lobbied the federal government to legal gar legally guarantee that college athletic departments offer women equal opportunities to participate in sports. And she died at her home in Washington. <clears throat> she was 85. In the 70s, representing women's groups on campuses and on Capitol Hill, Miss Polivy, Polivy, that's how it's pronounced, Miss Polivy, fought the male-dominated National Collegiate Athletics Association and helped transform the ambiguous wording of congressional and anti-discrimination mandates, which had made no specific mention of sports, into a Hail Mary pass that profoundly expanded the resources available to female athletes in high school and college. Title IX of the Educational Amendments of 1972 stated only Quote, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under the, any educational program or activity, activity receiving federal financial assistance, unquote. But once, but once athletes stake the claim to these benefits, with Title IX interpreted to include non-discrimination in sports, Ms. Polivy, a lawyer from the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, partnered with the National Coalition, Coalition for Women and Girls in Education to insist 
that the regulations being drafted to implement the legislation fulfill the expectations of the organization's supporters. Margaret Dunkel, whose 1974 analysis documenting discrimination against female college athletes, provided the blueprint for the regulations, said of Ms. Polavi in an email, she was a key player in shaping Title IX sports regula regulations, which opened athletic scholarships for women and set standards to ensure that female teams got the funding and resources needed to excel. And you've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the October 17th issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Tom Allen. Thank you for listening and have a great day.